Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name's Brent. And this episode, put down your snakes and grab some sand. It's SST 176, the Divine Horseman Handful of Sand EP. We have had uh, the Divine Horseman on a number of times. We uh, love them. I think we keep becoming bigger and bigger fans each time we have a release of theirs on the show. And to help us out this time, Brant, we've got a special guest. Yeah, Peter Andrews is on the show. So awesome. I was thinking back right from the first notes of SST 140, the Divine Horseman Snake Handler record. I was like, I knew Brant was going to be into Peter's playing. And now we've got him on the show to tell us how it all went down. So very cool. Yeah, totally, man. Brant, lay some spiels on me. Okay. I'm going to tell you about a few new releases that I picked up, and you're probably not going to want to hear it because I'm guessing you don't have these yet, but they're coming in the mail. That's fine. <laughs> okay. Well, here's one you probably don't have, and it's the, the new John. I'll say the new John Zorn, but there's like probably 10 new John Zorn records. But this one's called Chaos Magic. It's on Zadik. His label uh, just came out. It's the Simulcrum Band, so you know it rocks. Uh, so that's Kenny Grohowski on drums, Matt Hollenberg on guitar, John Modeski on organ, and special guest on this one is Brian Marcella on electric piano. Kick-ass fusion, heavy riffing, some cool atmospheric stuff, one of which uh, samples Alistair Crowley. It's a cool record. Ryan, here's one I know you'll be picking up if you haven't already, and that's the new Art Bergman record. Yes, yeah, I don't have it yet, but I, I will be. Um, I was actually just reading an article about how he made the Order of Canada. And for anyone who doesn't know what that is, that's like, that's really important in Canada for cultural significance. You get the Order of Canada. And shockingly, Art Bergman received that uh, last year or the year before. But uh, I'm a lifelong fan of, of all of his recordings. Yeah. Is Art, do you think, widely known outside of Canada? I highly doubt it. I actually highly, highly doubt it, which is too bad. Um, he might be best known in old school punk circles for the band, the Young Canadians that uh, he found. Well, it was originally the KTELs, which turned into the Young Canadians. But that first wave Western Canada punk rock, that might be what he's best known for and not broadly. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you've heard his song Hawaii. That's like the big Young Canadians hit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyways, uh, he also had a band called Poisoned, I think, after the Young Canadians. Yep, one yeah. 12-inch. Yeah, he was in a band called Los Populeros for a while. And then yep. several solo albums in the 80s and 90s. All of them are good. Mm -hmm. And then he kind of disappeared for 10 to 15 years. Came back in 2014 with this great kind of protest album, Songs for the Underclass. Uh He's been in a bunch of movies like Highway 61. He plays himself in Hardcore Logo. I had heard, Ryan, he wasn't doing loud rock music anymore, like because of hearing loss. But this album is, you know, it's a rock album. It, it's called Late Stage Empire Dementia. You know, he's as angry as ever. The song titles are like Christo Fascists Amphetamine Alberta. He also battled addiction himself for many years. I've seen him a few times live, but Ryan, do you remember the time we saw him together? Uh, live and acoustic at the club you book at? Yep. He did talent show by The Replacements. It was it was the ultimate for me. Yeah. 
He was definitely under the influence, and you called out for the song I Hate Music. You yelled, play I Hate Music, which you were referring to the Young Canadians version, because they have a song called I Hate Music. And he goes, I don't know that one, but I can do this, and he played Talent Show. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, that's good. Can I can I tell you an Art Bergman story of mine? Yeah. Okay, so also a first wave Western Canadian punk band, The Pointed Sticks. Mm-hmm. Reunion tour, 2009, 2010, I think. Art Bergman had, uh, in the intervening years, I, I mean, I think he was originally well i know he was originally based out of vancouver western canada i think maybe lived in toronto for a while Mm -hmm. but then found his way back to alberta for some reason rural alberta and that's where he still lives anyways 2009 2010 pointed sticks are coming through the city i live in i'm there with my buddy graham we go and we're just losing our minds to the pointed sticks these are classic pop punk canadian rock songs just digging it love we're just we're just fanboying out not just on the music but like the ancient gear that they're playing that has been everywhere and played like just real road hogs you know because they didn't just stop at pointed sticks anyways they're they're done their set this is at like an underground club too like and it was an indie show not like a licensed bar or anything like that they're done their set everyone's calling the comeback for an encore Art Bergman stands up and does backing vocals for the pointing, <laughs> pointed sticks. It was awesome. Yeah. It was just awesome. I bet. I don't know if you've ever told me about that before. Yeah, so good. Uh, Ryan, the new reigning sound record is really good. A little more time with the reigning sound. In the mail. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's their first one in since 2014. Uh, it was worth the wait. Greg Cartwright kind of uh, reunited the Home for Orphans lineup of the band kind of went yeah. back to basics it's got a real live sound um, you know that it's that muscle shoals soul sound that he's kind of perfected it's great you'll love it oh i know yep uh the mars volta ryan have released a vinyl box set 18 lps containing all of their releases it's limited to 5,000 copies it's sold out in like five seconds you got one no oh no. okay uh, but it contains landscape tantrums, the kind of legendary unfinished recordings of so- of songs that eventually got, you know, re-recorded with Rick Rubin for Deloused in the Comatorium. Yep. Uh, unfortunately, they're apparently not releasing these recordings in any, any other physical format, but they are available digitally. So you should check those out. They're really good. Yeah, I got a pseudo... Mars Volta tie-in in my spiel, actually. Oh, cool. All right, Ryan, I'm going to take you into the comp zone. <laughs> you know what? I, I realized every time you surprise, you spring that one on me um, and I add our special sauce to it in the edit, mm-hmm. uh, I kind of sound like the guy uh, on the Shantae song Wipeout a bit. And... <laughs> And uh, I'm loving it. Keep it coming. Okay. Uh, This is Live at the Knitting Factory, Volume 1, Enemy Records. Very famous New York City club that opened in 87 and later expanded to other cities outside of New York. Uh, The awesome experimental free jazz group Curlew has a couple tracks on here. Founded by saxophonist George Cartwright. 
kind of a revolving door of members, but this version features Tom Cora, who we were just talking about, probably because of Fred Frith and Skeleton Crew, I'm guessing. Yep. Cool band on here, Bosho, kind of an avant-garde, no-wave group. Uh, the guitarist is on the SS Tree, David Fulton. will be popping up later on the Elliott Sharp and Carbon releases. And the drummer is Sam Bennett from Semantics. Nice. Jazz Passengers are on here twice. Cool kind of trippy jazz with, you know, vibraphone, sax, trombone, and podcast fave Mark Ribot on guitar. Ah, love Mark Ribot. Yep. This trio, Mark Dresser, Mark Feldman, Nels Klein, uh, the two Marks play double bass and violin, and then Nels is kind of doing his thing over top. One of the highlights on here is a group called Scanners. It's David Linton on drums. He played with E-Sharp and Carbon. Percy Jones of Brand X on bass and Elliot Sharp on guitar. It's like a more technical version of Gone or something like that. Hmm. Sounds interesting. I've, I've not heard this comp, um, yeah. but I've, it's one of those ones where I've seen or read about. I'll have to check it out. Yeah, there's a number of them. I think mm-hmm. there's five or six volumes. Miracle Room, pretty neat industrial killing joke type of thing. The percussionist in the band Miracle Room, Ryan, is Rock Savage of Bark Market. Ooh, I love me some Bark Market. Yep, they have an EP on Restless that I'd like to hear, Miracle Room. Hans und Tom, it's guitarist Hans Reichtel and Tom Cora. And then uh, Alva Rogers finishes off the record. Alva was vocalist in Band of Susans. Ooh, love me some Band of Susans too. That's a great New York comp, man. I got to check that out. I'm surprised I haven't. Yeah. Five volumes, hey? I think so. Spoiler alert, Ryan, I have all of them. So. Do you? Yeah. Oh, cool. So we might might have some future spiels here. Okay, nice. Well, um, hopefully someday... I'll get to come over to your place and we'll spin them mm-hmm. someday. That's it, Ryan. What do you have? Okay, I have one spiel. Okay. Okay. And the name of this spiel is SOS SS. Okay. Okay. SOS SS. It stands for Spotlight on Spectra Sonic Sound. Hmm. So, is this a nation of Ulysses? Oh, nice, nice. Okay, super street cred for that one, man. Okay, here we go. This this journey on SOS SS started when I was spieling about how I was re-obsessed with that band Rocket's Red Glare and that, that other related band, A2N Shridloo. I started to notice this label popping up called Spectrasonic Sound. And... And all this chatter on the interweb about this Ottawa, Canada scene, and more specifically the Ottawa, Gatineau, Brockville, Cornwall area. You had mentioned Sick Room Records from Chicago when I was talking about Rockets Red Glare, which I've also been digging. But I figured our listeners would prefer a spiel about an obscure Ottawa emo math rock post-hardcore label in the mid-90s with under 20 releases, don't you think? Yeah, oh yeah, it's practically why people listen to our show, man. (laughs) Exactly. So I was going to start this spiel with a quiz. Where do you think the name Spectrasonic Sound came from? Did I spoil it already? You already, no, you didn't spoil it. You passed it. Oh, okay. You passed the quiz. 
That is, I think, from a song of the same name on the excellent 1991 Nation of Ulysses album, 13-point program to destroy America on Discord. I think it's it's like Discord 57. If you know the Nation of Ulysses, then the bands on this label, Spectrasonic Sound, will come as no surprise to you. So here are some of the bands. I did a super ultra mega rabbit hole deep dive into Spectrasonic Sound. And, and I'm ju- I'm trying to claw my way out here. Um, here are some of the bands to check out. I can't find information on all of them, though. These are just the ones that I could find some info on that stood out for me. So you ready? This mm-hmm. is going to be rapid fire. Lay it on me. Get your pen out. Cockatoo quill. Okay. Ready? It's ready. Okay. The first one. Okara. O-K-A-R-A. Months Like Years is the name of the album from 1991. This is an Ottawa hardcore math rock band, super technical, groovy, mathy tunes, cool instro breaks, shout vocals with melodic breaks. Very cool record. Guitarist Matthew Camerand was in Black Mountain and Black Halos eventually for a spell. Hmm. Matthew was also in another band on Spectrasonic called 30 Second Motion Picture. The LP is Can't Kill Time from 1997 trudgy groovy post-hardcore totally would fit on discord and another guy in 30 second motion picture matt deline was in two other bands called three penny opera and the gray three penny opera have a great album called countless trips from here to there 1998 awesome post-hardcore so does the band that matt was in called the gray Open Credit is the album from 2003. Again, some rocking post-hardcore along the lines of At the Drive-In, the precursor to the Mars Volta. But here's a second quiz for you, Brent. Okay. What do the bands Three Penny Opera and The Grey have in common? Hmm. They're both on Spectrasonic Sound. (laughs) (laughs) No, they actually... Good, Nice one. Nice. Way to turn that one around on me, because I knew you couldn't get it. Um, they both have Hayden Menzies in the band, and Hayden went on to be in a band called Mets. Hmm. So if you like Mets, you like At the Drive-In, you like Mars Volta, check out Three Penny Opera. They're all often kind of short-formed as 3PO, and then the band The Grey. You'll like that. And Matt Deline from 30-second motion picture, The Gray, 3PO, also with Chuck Sasso from The Gray and 3PO. They have a new band called Dark Plains. They put out this great, noisy, post-hardcore record in uh, 2020, Dark Plains. You can pick that up on Bandcamp. And Chuck and Hayden were also in a great band called Last Communion, who put out a self-titled record in 2009. I didn't know that. Um, I had that record. I had no idea that they were in that. I was like, oh man, there's a connection there. I had no idea about. But there's more. The band is Franklin. Now, this is a band that was actually from Pennsylvania. So Spectrasonic, they must have been a a band that was touring and they ran into each other in uh, eastern Canada, U.S. there. The album is Building an A and E. The LP is from 1997, more cool, groovy, melodic, post-hardcore with some gang vocals, awesome. 
Um, I've also mentioned when talking about Rocket's Red Glare, the band Blake. That was a precursor for the guy David Weinkoff. He went on into Rocket's Red Glare and A2N Shredlu. Mathy, Emo, but really good. Uh, Spectrosonic put out their collected works on CD. Everything by Blake, one disc. Um, but here's another kind of tree that really blew my mind here. Um, this band called Kepler is also on Spectrosonic. And they put out a, a number of releases on Spectrosonic. Uh, the one that really grabbed me is called This Heart is Painted On. It's a CD EP, also from Ottawa. This is kind of a mellow Sunday afternoon indie roots rock type of record. I quite liked it. Um, but two guys in the band, Samir Khan, he was actually in A2N Shridlu, and a guy named Jeremy Gara, who went on to be in Arcade Fire, but Samir and Jeremy were also in Weights and Measures, hmm. an early early 90s instro math rock Canadian band that, I mean, I've always loved. They've kind of developed a bit of underground, I don't want to say legendary status, but I mean, they, I see them pop up now and then on um, feeds and websites, people going, hey, have you ever heard of this band from Canada, Weights and Measures? Um, their collected works were put together on a double LP in 2019 on Oscarson Records. If you're into any of the stuff I'm talking about, Weights and Measures collection, just awesome. But I had no idea that there was a Weights and Measures Rockets Red Glare connection, but I'm not surprised at all. Oh, I should also mention Spectrasonic also re-released the awesome classic um, Canadian post-hardcore band uh spark marker their album products and accessories re-released that one um that's that's killer all of spark marker stuff is killer then they also released a record by a band that i could not find anything about including i couldn't find any of their music but the reason it caught my interest the name of the band is hacksaw they put out a self-titled record on spectrosonic but chad and jeremy from hacksaw went on to be in the band the deadly snakes mm which I had no idea about. And the Deadly Snakes have got a connection with one of your spiels, Hit It. Uh, Greg Cartwright was in the Deadly Snakes. Boom. There you go, man. And we saw that lineup live. Exactly. Hey, give me one second, okay? Yep. I thought I had a record by a band called Hacksaw. You've got it. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Nice one. What's it like? It's been a long time, man. It's on arranged records oh i, I want to hear that i think it's if i remember it's kind of like a more of a helicopters type thing oh no way that doesn't surprise me if the dudes went on to deadly snakes if i'm remembering right there's a song on here that has a sample from the movie thrashing Ooh, <laughs> i got i gotta check that out next time i'm at your place nice one i had no idea that i was gonna go into my little my little uh, rabbit hole and unexpectedly reach back into some of your spiels. Um, that that's awesome. I love that. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's all I got, man. Is it time to uh, seek some sanctuary? Yeah. History lesson part one. All right, Brent, it's divine horseman time. And uh, I got to admit, like I was more of a flesh eaters fan. When, when we started down the Christie path on this podcast, 
and you know a bit of a divine horseman fan but um i don't know this record just sunk in the hook for me and it's weird because it's an ep half of it is air quotes live Mm -hmm. and uh i don't know what it is like the band is just on fire love peter's guitar you know i love robin's bass playing julie and chris are just unstoppable rex owns the pocket what a great record Mm -hmm. yeah so just to refresh people's memories with some of the people ryan's talking about robin jameson is the bass player on this rex roberts is the drummer peter andrews is the guitarist and chris d and julie christensen do the vocals together this is the same lineup as the snake handler record yeah yeah uh we've seen divine horseman a number of times on episode 90 middle of the night where we had chris d as a guest 91 devil's river uh, with julie christensen uh, as a guest and then 140 snake handler so unfortunately this will be the last time we see the divine horseman this recording is basically the last gasp of the of the band as you'll hear in the interview uh, the band and julian chris's marriage was you know basically falling apart while they recorded the the title track fortunately though ryan it's not the last time we'll see chris d we've got a number of releases uh with the reunited flesh eaters coming not for, yeah not for a while though probably a couple of years away if we can stick with it <laughs> what do you think i think we can i'm still i'm still driving towards 200 yeah, this year i have what it takes 200 or bust man yeah let's throw it over to peter all right we're joined on the podcast today by peter andrus peter thanks for being on the show uh no problem thanks for having me all right i'm wondering if you can take me back where did you grow up i grew up out in claremont which is probably about you know 40 minutes east of downtown L.A., mm-hmm. and in the Inland Empire, as they call it. When did you start playing guitar? Uh, I was probably about 13, 1977, uh, and uh, I was in a band by the time I was 14 uh, called The Decadence, ah. and we started playing around out there. So you were pretty young. You were still in high school when that band started. Oh, yeah, I was a little squirt, yeah. <laughs> so when you started playing, what kind of music were you into? I was heavily into the Kinks and the Stooges and um, Velvet Underground, um, Bowie, all the glam stuff that came before punk rock. And then when punk rock hit, that was pretty much everything. Uh, we just went crazy for it. And the reissue of the of the Nuggets album came out probably about 75 and I discovered it when I was probably about 12. So that was the Lenny K's compilation of Mm -hmm. all the garage rock stuff in the sixties. And, um, you know, I was, I missed it first time around. Uh, and so that was a big influence on a lot of us too. that and all the, you know, the, the punk rock scene out in LA, we could listen to on, uh, Rodney on the rock. And so we, you know, we just kind of devoured everything that we could find, you know, Mm-hmm. Uh, the other members of the band, Stephen and Jill, were they from your high school? Uh, Steve was. I'd known Steve since I was a little kid. Um, and Steve and Jill had a band with our friend Roger, who you probably know as Roz Williams from Christian Death. And they had a band called the Asexuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was like sort of summer of 78. And in the fall, he quit the band. And I kind of 
took over as on guitar and we, you know, started playing around uh, early in 79. So I was 15, I think, by the time we started playing out. But then we, you know, we played around quite a bit out, out in the, that area and then occasionally in, in L.A. at Hong Kong Cafe and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. any notable shows? I mean, that's like still first wave era uh, L.A. punk. Uh, yeah, I mean, we played the, you know, we were pretty much the first, you know, punk band in that part of Southern California. There were a lot of bands just south of us in Orange County that would come up. And so we would do shows with, uh, there were these kind of crazy shows at the PAL, uh, boxing gym in Pomona. Uh, and we would have, you know, it'd be the adolescents and, you know, Christian death and we would play and there was, we did a, two shows with social distortion even back when they were a three-piece you know right when they were first starting out uh and they were also really young i mean everybody was was young Mm -hmm. you know the uh the bands from the suburbs and from orange county were i don't know had 10 12 years younger than than the bands in hollywood like i used to tease chris chris d from divine horseman and julie and all them is because you know those guys were like 12 years older than me on average when i when i joined the band and so you know all the all the little kids from the from the suburbs they were all like in their mid teens when all the bands at hollywood were in their mid to late 20s right. you know um i'm you know old friends with with kk barrett from the screamers and i always you know kk is always 12 years older than me you know <laughs> and uh it was kind of the deal in the band you know i was the young i was the young kid in divine horseman mm-hmm. how long was the decadent together i i believe you're single came out in around 82 yeah well that was we formed in 78 we started doing some recording in 79 with steve's uh steve's dad chris darrow who was an amazing musician and songwriter used to play in the kaleidoscope uh in the 60s and he he played with linda ronstadt and he was he was kind of big in the sort of california country rock scene and the psychedelic scene in the 60s and he uh uh, he was a mentor to a lot of young musicians in our town, including Ben Harper, who's an old friend of mine. But anyway, we started recording. We recorded four songs uh, on a four-track reel-to-reel that Chris had in, in Steve's garage. And one of those got pressed on an acetate, a song called Slow City, that Rodney played a few times on his show, which was a big uh, a big deal for us. For sure. And then... Those songs, the song is one, we had to change our name to The Decadent. We used to call, be called The Decadence, but believe it or not, like a couple towns over, there was some other band calling themselves The Decadence. And I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of bands called The Decadence, but uh, so we just changed it to The Decadent when that came out. So that, that was actually recorded, I think, in 1980, and it took two years to come out. And there's only, I think, 200 of those uh, singles pressed. And they were, it was a pretty much a private pressing that, Steve Darrow put out. They right. scraped up some money. That was after I was out of the band. I left in '81 in the fall, I guess. And they, um, so I'm on, I'm on that recording. But that stuff was recorded down in San Clemente. It's, I forget the guy's name who recorded it down there. But um, you know, we're in the process of maybe having somebody put out a, a record. We're trying to gather all of our scattered recordings together to try to do get something going on. Oh wow! There was there other studio stuff. There, uh, or four I'm trying to stuff? remember how many songs. Well, there's we had four four track stuff, and then there was a multi track. The, the stuff that came out uh, on the on the single, I'm trying to remember. It was at least eight track. 
Um, and there, I think there's another couple of songs on that. And then we have some, some rehearsal tapes recorded on a cassette player in this barn in back of my house where we used to, where we used to rehearse that we're going through and try to find out what the fidelity is, what we can say, what we can do. And then, uh, we also, we did a reunion show, uh, for the release of a book on, uh, uh, Southern California, uh, uh, death rock uh, phantoms um, I'm assuming. phantoms yeah. yeah and we uh so we did a uh we played at that book opening thing it was a, it was a good show and we somebody recorded it i guess it's up on on facebook or oh, something cool. but the audio is pretty good so we're 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 considering you got talking to the person who uh who uh recorded that and maybe uh adding that to the mix too but you know we're still we're still kind of working on that Oh, well, that'd be cool. Did you know at that time, like, were you, I want to say, were you trying to be a part of that kind of scene? But, like, there were other bands that sounded like that like that at that time that, that I'm assuming you were playing shows with, like you mentioned Christian Death, for example. Well, I mean, those were friends of mine. They were just, they were, you know, it was started by my friend John Albert and, and our friend Roger, uh, and, um, I mean, the, the funny thing is when Christian death started out, they sounded like a surf band, Oh, really? you know, it was very simple. Yeah. It was, uh, a surf band with kind of spooky lyrics, you know, mm-hmm. and it got, it got into a whole other thing when Rick Agnew, like the first record, I think Rick Agnew, um, got on board and he added a whole other layer of stuff onto that, but we were just doing what we were doing. Um, it wasn't a conscious thing to try to sound like anybody else. So the thing about the decadence is we either played really fast or really slow. Um, you know, we had, we had songs that were kind of dirgy and then, uh, we had other songs that were, they sounded like a lot of other Southern California punk bands, just kind of, you know, fast and loud. Mm-hmm. Uh, was Steve's dad getting you into anything cool or were you like open to his, his stuff? Well, you know, it, his stuff was completely different than what we were doing, but I was always a huge fan of the kaleidoscope. I mean, they were, I thought they were the coolest band ever. Um, and, you know, he was in that band in the 60s. And so, I mean, we weren't, at that point, we were not going out trying to make that kind of music. In fact, you know, the whole punk rock thing in Southern California was, a, a, in, in fact, a kind of reaction against what was the California sound before that, right. you know, which was kind of like the Eagles and all that kind of stuff. And, and he was sort of involved in some of that. So it it, it was... It was just that his 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 manner and his way of just encouraging um, you know kids to play music and uh, teaching us about recording and uh, he was a huge supporter of the band mm-hmm. um, and he he loved what we were doing um, even if we weren't doing the kind of music that that you know that he had he had made and and I came to uh, really appreciate um, his other music as well as I got older. Right, yeah. um, but I've always, I mean, actually always his, he, he put out a series of solo records in the seventies, in the which were just amazing. Um, and I just, I had those when I was a kid, but mm-hmm. he was, uh, he was the first professional musician that, uh, I'd ever met. And I just thought that was the coolest thing. Uh, did you pl- like play at your high school? No, no, no. We were, we, we, we were just, we were trying to distance ourselves as far as <laughs> much as possible from high school. I wouldn't, I didn't even want to taint our music by you know doing it at a high school they wouldn't have they wouldn't have let us play there anyway but no we didn't do any music at the high school no no punk rockers at your high school 
Uh, we were the first ones. <laughs> so Stephen and Jill go on and I believe form the superheroines at some point. What did you do next musically? Um, what did I do next musically? I didn't after the after the decadence. I was a it was uh, a few years where I didn't do I didn't do much for I mean, I'm trying to think uh, after the decadence. Um, it was probably about two or three years before I started really doing a lot of music again. I was I was still playing, but I wasn't I didn't have like a I wasn't right into another band um, until you know Crowbar Salvation was sort of started to percolate around. 84 and we didn't really it was Ma marty basically and marty nation and myself and then we finally put a band together at the end of 85 and um early 86 when we started playing around i just assumed based on the recorded outfit that crowbar nation or sorry crowbar salvation came after the divine horseman crowbar but salvation well, Crowbar Salvation was actually before, for me, for Divine Horseman. We didn't have a record out until the very beginning of 89. Mm -hmm. But we were sort of in and out of the studio for a, a couple of years, you know, doing um, demos and things. And then, you know, Long Gone John from Sympathy for the Record Industry, uh, who I knew from just around Hollywood, and he used to come out to see, see us play all the time. He uh, was saying, yeah, you know, I'm gonna I'm putting out a record by... Uh, lazy cowgirls and he wasn't really talking about doing a label yet or anything mm -hmm. uh and then he next time talked to him and says you know what i'm going to start a label uh and he was going around asking people if they had any demos or any unreleased stuff he wanted to put out and he asked us and we said you know what we actually have a bunch of half finished stuff and so we went into paul degray's place and we just uh you know finished some stuff up went into west beach with brett gerwitz and did some of that and then we ended up having a putting out a so we putting out an EP it was like the first batch of stuff that came out on sympathy uh, after the cowgirls record mm -hmm. it was probably January of 89 so it took a little while to get stuff out but we were playing around constantly um, throughout that time you know even while you were in the divine horseman yeah and then yeah as a matter of fact one of the guitar players for uh, divine horseman uh, Wayne James was the bass player in crowbar salvation original bass player uh, and so the whole time that he was in divine horseman he was also playing with me and crowbar and marty and crowbar salvation we were going by the name crowbar then but there was other bands called crowbar so we ended up adding salvation actually not long before we put the record out but yeah wayne was playing bass and we had herman sinek from blood on the saddle on uh drums and we had andy seven on saxophone uh and yeah we played around you know pretty steady um and then uh, was I think Halloween of '86, uh, and I remember this because I remember Wayne was wearing a dress <laughs> when he was talk when we were talking about this. But he was quitting uh, Crowbar Salvation and Divine Horseman to join Legal Weapon, who just were about to get signed by MCA. Mm -hmm. And so he said, uh, "You know, uh, I gave your name to Chris D." Um, they need someone just to fill in for a bit because they got a record coming out, which was Devil's River. Um, it was coming out in December. And they got, you know, said there's going to be a record release show in December and they maybe do a tour or something. And they just need someone to fill in so they can find, they can find somebody else or, you know, find somebody old. Mm 
<laughs> instead of young like me. Right. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. So he he quit. So I just started. I you know started just playing with him there, and we and we did our a few shows around, and then I just ended up kind of just being in the band. Mm-hmm. Had you played with Divine Horseman, like with Crowbar Salvation? We had never done shows together, no. But I, you know, I uh, I'd seen him play a bunch of times. And the thing is, we all so many bands rehearsed at the same rehearsal studio. There was this place called Holly Gully Rehearsal, which was actually run by Robin from Divine mm-hmm. Horseman and another the other guy Bill. And so everybody rehearsed there. I mean, X uh, Los Lobos, and then it was like all the other bands that kind of were part of our different bands, like the Blow on the Saddle rehearsed there, Legal Weapon rehearsed there, Crowbar rehearsed there, Divine Horseman rehearsed there. And sometimes I would, you know, do three hours with with uh, Divine Horseman and then do another three hours of rehearsal or a couple hours of rehearsal with Crowbar Salvation after that. So it was like you saw everybody, and everybody, you met everybody there. Everybody was there. So everybody kind of knew each other, you know, so everybody kind of stole members of bands from, from each other and or borrowed them or whatever. And um, that was kind of end up how, uh, how that happened with, with me and Divine Horseman. Well, that answers one of my questions. I wasn't sure if you and Wayne were in Divine Horseman at the same time at any point. Um, only for the uh, the three songs that were uh, the live songs that were on um, uh, Snake Handler. They actually ended up being re-released again on Handful of Sand. Mm-hmm. So we technically weren't though in the in the band at the same time ever. Not really. Okay, so he like guested with the band for that show. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. What was that like going from what was a two guitar band and making it a one guitar band? Well, um, it kind of gave me a license to go big in a way because, uh, you know, Wayne and Cam, their stuff was really, they had like sort of figured out all these proper parts and it's all textured and layered and everything. And, it, uh, it's, and, uh, Devil's River is an amazing record, mm-hmm. and so I think it's a great guitar record. You can hear those guys playing off of each other. And I just had to make—I just tried to make it sound uh, big. And I wasn't really listening to just the guitars. I was kind of there's a lot of blues harp in there. There's fiddle. There's organ. So I would take all those melody lines and just put them in one big. I just want to make it sound like one big giant guitar, and it kind of worked out. You know, I had to. Uh, Anyway, yeah, I, it was. It's a different sound, and you can kind of hear it. There's a there's a uh, a live CD that Byron Coley put out back in December mm-hmm. of last year on Feeding Tube Records, and it's uh, it's a really good document of the band. I think it has it has Wayne and another guitar player, uh, uh, Marshall uh, Rohner, who was in the band in '85, and there's a, a recording, a few songs from '85, and then there's another. The other half of the CD is when I'm in the band in 87 playing at the rat in Boston. And it's a really good document of the band. You can kind of hear the different, the different sound. It definitely got raw when I, I joined, but it was just sort of out, out of necessity of anything else. And, you know, yeah, it's a great, it's a great album that February 87 recording at the rat. So that would have been before snake handler. That was before snake handler. And that was, yeah, it's kind of funny. That was technically supposed to be the the uh, Devil's River tour, but kind of what happened was, well, when I when I started playing with with these guys, the Divine Horsemen, they uh, they said, look, we have a 
record release show and then there's going to be this little short tour just going to texas and back and then we're going to maybe go out on the road again in february march or whatever and so the the tour in december got canceled and so the devil's river tour then was going to be the one in february march and so you know they're waiting a couple of months to tour for their album it's not the end of the world well we get out on the road and then they release ssg releases another record while we're out they put out um middle of the night right so now we're touring for two records or what is you know anyway (laughs) we were out there and so it was a bit it was a bit confusing and and me just like trying to remember back about it yeah it was just kind of confusing because there were when i was in the band for only about a year we released three lps and and one (laughs) three lps and one and one uh ep in the time I was in the band and then, you know, six months later they released another one. So in the course of a year and a half, you know, it's like four records came out. So their SSC was just cranking out all this, all this divine horseman stuff. And, um, you know, we would have had to been on the road constantly to, um, uh, to support those, but you know, half the time we were too busy recording. So, you know, yeah, well that's SST for you. They were cranking everything out at that point the live tracks on the handful of sand EP. Do you know where they were recorded? I do. Do you want to know, do you want to know what the real story is about that? Yeah. I'll tell you the real story. Okay. The real story about that is that those are live in the studio. (laughs) I thought that's what you might say. (laughs) Yep. It's live in the studio with audience from uh, one of our shows at the music machine. Okay. And we just wanted an excuse to play with Wayne, so we got Wayne in the studio to 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 jam on that stuff, you know. And um, you know, I think Chris has copped to this in other interviews, so you know. Okay. But if you know, if those don't sound a world apart from the from the live stuff on the thing, so you know, uh, and we did, you know, I think you know the Seeds did that with their live record. There's a, there's a history in rock and roll going oh, yeah. fake uh, <laughs> live stuff. So anyway. Yep. Uh, that was recorded by Paul. Do you know if that was during the Snake Handler recording sessions? Uh, yeah, it was just it was either part of it or just before it. You know, um, I yeah, I think it was probably part of it. We were in there like around June of '87. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you know? Was there any, ever any discussion about bringing in a second guitar player, or was it always um, going to stay how it was? Mm- I think, well, no, there was like, when Wayne came in, we just wanted to have fun, you know, and I was good friends with Wayne and, uh, we just figured let's just bring Wayne in and have some fun. He wasn't really like he was going to come in and play on the record, but there wasn't really any discussion about it. Um, we, I did maybe four or five shows around town with those guys and everybody uh, with Divine Horseman and people seemed to really like the sound and everybody was really happy. And so for the first few shows, you know, I was still like, just assuming, yeah, I'm just going to play with these guys for a few shows, and they're going to get somebody else, and I'll, you know, go off and do whatever. And um, and then finally, you know, Chris and Joey just said, hey, you know, it's sounding good. Why don't you Why don't you just stick around? You know. And so as soon as they said that, I said, okay, well, check it out. And I I laid about three or four songs on them that I've been working on, just some riffs, and that was Snake Handler, Curse of the Crying Woman, Someone Like You, and I can't remember so another song, maybe uh, Kiss Tomorrow Goodbye. Um, some riffs that I had in my pocket that were going to be Crowbar Salvation songs. But, you know, so then I started writing with him and then it was like, okay, well, we got to make this record then. So um, we just kind of, there wasn't really a discussion about a second guitar player after that. 
Right. Yeah, I was going to ask about the writing credits and, and the writing process. I, I assumed you were bringing riffs in, but when you're bringing these riffs in, are you writing in the rehearsal space, you know, with, with Robin um, and Rex? And... Um, sometimes. I mean, really, uh, a lot of it was me going over to Chris and Julie's, you know, for, I, I think it was a, a couple of nights we knocked out first the crying woman and snake handler and i had a lot of the of the guitar bits for uh, someone like you and then you know writing with chris and i was it's pretty easy we wrote this last record came together really fast the one that we recorded in uh fall of 2019 mm -hmm. uh the only stuff that really kind of came together in the rehearsal of uh which would have been um what is red uh, off of Snake Handler, which was a uh, uh, Rex brought that in, and um, and then I think Stone by Stone off of Snake Handler, which uh, I think I, mean, I seem to remember that coming together. That was Robin's Robin's uh, thing. Yeah, I remember that kind of coming together in rehearsal. But aside from that, it's just sort of uh, Chris and Julie and I going off and getting something together and then bring it in for the band. Do you recall the sessions at Control Center? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Uh, Rick Novak and um, Rick Novak and and I had a great time with Paul. Paul was a friend of mine, um, and you know Paul used to do Paul DeGray used to do live sound for X for for years, and he um, you know I got to know him, and he was a a, a a good choice for a co-producer, I think. But I think they went they went pretty smooth, and you know it, it was in it was in Koreatown, um, and back of some some card parlor some Korean uh, gambling joint. It was like, uh, anyway, it was, it was an interesting place, but it has a great sounding room and, and Rick was great. And I know that Chris had worked there in the past. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know that, uh, well, Paul DeGray used to have this old 1950s, like bread delivery truck, this weird, uh, weird old thing. And we used to, he had this cassette player in there and he had, I don't know, it was, American Kore, it was uh, some Turkish singer. And we would go in there and we'd blast Turkish music and eat tacos and we'd drive up and down <laughs> Western Avenue while they were, you know, messing around in there for a minute. We'd take a little break and we'd listen to our Turkish tape and we'd drive up and down and eat tacos and we'd go back. And also, you know, Chris and Julie were had some extracurricular activities going on in there too. So they were, mm -hmm. you know, at, at that point, both of them had, I mean, I know that they've been somewhat open with you about their, pretty much open with some of their drug problems so whenever that stuff would go on paul and i would just bail right. i didn't want to be around it so we would go out and and drive around and uh okay. eat tacos it sounds like a safer alternative yeah sure <laughs> uh what about making the snake handler video what do you remember about that oh it was kevin Kerslake. um well i remember we uh, he, someone had a snake, right? I don't know who brought the snake. Um, and we were, there used to be these railroad yards, which they've now, they're now gone, but they were these railroad yards that had been there for, uh, they'd been there for over a hundred years that were, uh, north of Chinatown. You, you were, you could just, you had access to them and they were actually trained to slowly moving by with us down there. We just walked down the train tracks, didn't get, get run over. And we, we jumped in this whole box car uh and uh someone threw a snake up there and it was crawling around on us and then we shot the rest of it i think in chris's chris and julie's backyard maybe their neighbor's backyard 
And then there was some live stuff that he shot at the music machine uh, in West LA, some of the black and white super eight stuff that get, that got put in there. But yeah, I remember, I remember doing that. Mm -hmm. Now, was this like your first taste of significant touring? Yes. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Did you, did you like it? Did you know it was something you wanted to keep doing? Um, yeah, it was, you know, we got our van stolen on the first tour. It was the, it was the, the, uh, day after the last show on the whole tour. Wow. You know, we'd been out for about four or five weeks or so. And, you know, we watched the van like a hawk, you know, everybody had the, we had our gear in the back underneath a little platform. And so it was like a bunch of five people crammed in this van with all of our gear. And so we would never leave it unattended, you know, and if we were staying in some motel, we couldn't park right in front of our place. We'd unload the whole damn thing and dump all the gear in our room. Um, uh, and the last night, you know, we did a show with, I think it was DC three and fire hose or something. And we, the next morning we're leaving and we said, you know, we've been in New Orleans for a couple of days and can't any proper food. So we went to the French quarter and parked around the corner and went and got some red beans and rice. I mean, literally we were no more than like, 20 yards away from the van around the corner. We came back, we were gone like 10 minutes, it was gone. And so we deserved it. That's a stupid thing. It was like the New Orleans was the car theft capital of North America in in the late 80s. Um, And so, yeah, so uh, we had a, Robin had a credit card and we all flew back to LA. And so I wasn't, that part of touring I didn't like so much, but Mm -hmm. you know, I thought it, yeah, I liked it. What guitars did you lose in in that unfortunate incident? I lost everything. I lost my first guitar I ever had, which was still, I had a 1960 uh, Melody Maker, Double Cutaway, Mm -hmm. um, Gibson Melody Maker. I lost that. I lost um, a silver tone, uh, two silver tone guitars. Uh, I had a backup guitar, which was a Strat, like a, and then I had a, um, I had an acoustic guitar. I lost like five guitars. And of course, all your coolest clothes, you know, it's like, I didn't have my amp. Didn't have anything. I came back and uh, ex uh, Firehose and the Hangman did a benefit show for us, and we all got got some money to try to help us out with that gear, you know. But um, yeah, that's a drag. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Probably a good thing was that uh, they also stole my snakeskin suit that I used to wear sometimes on stage, <laughs> which uh, which you know it's probably a good thing that they got rid of that. Thing, you know, it was. It was vinyl upholstery fabric, and it didn't breathe. So, you know, it's a warning to any kid out there, like, you know, don't do it. It'll, you'll, it's, uh, you know, it's a bad idea. Well, what you else know? are you going to wear on the snake handler tour? I guess so, Someone yeah. had to do it. Well, that was actually before the <laughs> snake handler tour. <laughs> right, know? right. Yeah. So. Yeah, you're playing a Strat on the back cover of this handful of sand. I wasn't sure if you were yeah, a that- Strat guy or... I wasn't actually that I'm trying to think when that that was taken I think that was one of the the uh guitars that I had to buy after my stuff got stolen that may have been at some benefit show I also I'm playing a Marshall which isn't mine that Marshall belongs to uh one of the Kinman brothers um uh from there I think in Firebird they were they were playing that night and it was something at the yeah, I'm not normally a I'm not normally a Strat guy, but I sort of out of necessity, I ended up. It's the only thing I could afford. I got like a Korean Strat um, after my stuff got stolen. Um, I don't have anything against Strats, but I I don't you know, it's not my guitar of choice really. Mm-hmm. 
but that show where that picture was taken, it was at the Variety Arts Center, and I don't know what it was. It was a benefit. Everybody went up and played like two or three songs. And there were a bunch of bands. Um, it was really fun. But I, I can't, I don't, I can't remember like what it was for. Kind of a shared backline situation, probably. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So the track "Handful of Sand" was that written after the Snake Handler sessions? Like, was it written on tour? Yeah, it was. It was written. It was written. Well, I had that riff floating around for a bit, and I brought it in to Chris. Um, it was, well, the Snake Handler tour was like eh, probably end of September through October, I think, of, of uh, or October of, of 87. Um, we recorded that uh, in December of 87. I, you know, I don't know if I brought it in during the tour or before the tour, um, but the lyrically, this was a, you know, Chris was struggling with, it was the whole, the whole thing is about, um, and he can probably tell you more about it, but it's the whole thing about his struggle with addiction. And, uh, and so that really played out kind of on the second tour because Julie had gotten her, her had gotten clean and Chris was still kind of struggling with that. And that was, I think, I mean, I, as soon as I heard the lyrics, I, you know, I knew exactly what he was, what he was talking about. I could, I could, I'd, I'd seen him go through it, right? And so I don't think we ever played that on the Snake Handler tour. I think it came together, I don't know. We, it was probably about a, uh, it was probably about a month between we got off the road when we actually recorded the song. So I don't know if it was, we didn't play it on the, on the Snake Handler tour, I don't think. Okay. You just went in and went like one day and just did that one song with, with Paul? Yeah. Pretty much, yeah. I think it was one day, and I mean, look, that, that was you know the band pretty much split up during that. Well, their marriage pretty much split up and everything during that recording process. It was just a lot of drama in the studio. And we, uh, you know, uh, we ended up sounding great. I thought the you know the original the original version, um, but yeah, I think that that there had to be. I think there may have been another vocal overdub. There was something else that was done at Paul's. Paul DeGray's place with that, but I can't remember what it was. But I know we had Brantley Kearns come in and play fiddle. It was amazing. And he's, he was in, I think, Dwight Yoakam's band at the time. But, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, so there was a lot of drama during that, during that, uh, during that day in the studio. And that was pretty much kind of sealed the fate of the band, you know. Mm-hmm. Was it, would you say, obvious to the rest of the band, you know, oh, yeah. that the, the relationship was falling apart during that final yeah, tour? Yeah, I mean, yeah, we had just got we had just gotten off on the road. I mean, look, it's, it's, it'd be tough. It's it'd be tough to be, you know, in a, uh, married to somebody in a band and then you're, you're jammed in a van with a bunch of other guys for, for weeks on end. You know, it's like everything is out in the open. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it was, so yeah, it, it was, it was, it was obvious that there were some problems going on and, and, uh, you know, I can't remember the whole blow by blow, but I remember it being, you know, uh, uh, for a fair bit of drama during that session. Mm-hmm. Do you think you knew the Snake Handler tour would be the the final tour? It was possible. There was talk about uh, talk about trying to get us over to Europe, and I kind of I was hoping that we were going to do that. I I thought that the band days were numbered. But I figured, ah, if we can, you know, it'd be nice to get over to Europe and do a European tour before we call it quits. Um, but I could tell after that that it, that wasn't going to happen. 
you know. Um, there were tensions definitely on the Snake Handler tour, but it was, you know, it was unclear. It wasn't entirely clear that things were going to be done. And then after the, the recording of, of uh, that one song, it, it became more obvious that, yeah, I think things were, were done. I have to ask you about the Keefe riffs at this point and the and the tunings. Is that something you were... Were you a Stones fan? Uh, I was a Stones fan. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I um, but I, you know, most of those open, like I was a big fan of Mississippi Fred McDowell. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I got a lot of the open stuff from, from him. But um, uh, I think, I think Keith probably did too. Yeah, for uh, sure. <laughs> but I, I, uh, um, in Crowbar Salvation, a lot, of, I played a lot of songs. Uh, there was a lot of, a lot of bottleneck on the, on, on those songs. And uh, that was an open E. And then I played, let's see, anything I played slide on with, with, uh, Divine Horseman, their songs, well, well, Wayne had already written uh, Middle of the Night, and he wrote, wrote that in Open D. And Wayne and I used to play a lot together, and we both were experimenting with open tunings. And he liked he liked Open open D, which is the same, it's pretty much the same tuning as Open E. It's just a full step down. But he, he liked to play in D. I like to play in E. So when I joined Divine Horseman, I, since we already had a song in Open D, any of the other songs that I wrote that were going to be for Slide were going to like Someone Like You, uh, and, uh, there's also another open detuning, uh, on snake handler, which was, uh, that's no way to live. Um, those were open tuning. Um, I've had people ask me about Chris, the crying woman. That's actually standard tuning. It's just a very, very strange, uh, C shaped G chord way up the neck with lots of open drones and things like that. So that's actually standard, but, um, yeah, I mean, I love, I love those. I love, I still play a lot of open tunings today. So, uh, now I know this was, I believe, Chris's concept on the cover, and I'm not sure if you have it in front of you, but can you explain to me what's going on on the on the cover of Handful of Sand? Well, yeah, I mean, I don't know. In one of these ones, the hand is Allison Anders's hand, I think, uh, the director, and one of them is with someone named Pam. Uh, there's two different ones. There's two different versions. There's one of them. I think the cassette is a little bit down. Actually, I am actually looking at it. But it's funny. It's basically, it's aquarium sand and like aquarium foil in the back. And there's some type of uh, uh, little icon, which, of course, you know, you're you're not supposed to have a, uh, a uh, horseshoe upside down like that because they say all the luck spills out uh-huh. you know when you see a horseshoe up on a barn above it it's usually the open parts at the top right so um i'm not quite sure that that was all chris's little concept so i don't know i, I can't really i can't really say what he was thinking it says tattoo jill jordan i'm assuming that's jill from flesh eaters yes yeah so uh divine horseman break apart you just go back to, or maybe don't go back to, you're still still doing Crowbar Salvation still, at the same time. I'm, yeah, I'm still doing Crowbar Salvation, and yeah, we, we just continue to play around, and, um, you know, we were doing bits and record, bits and pieces of recording over the, the next year and a half or so, and eventually that stuff came out um, uh, on sympathy for the record industry. Did you end up touring? Crowbar never toured. Crowbar Salvation never toured, no. Nah. I'm not sure if there's stuff in between you reuniting with Steve in with the Rubbertown Freaks. 
Uh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, that. Um, just little bits and pieces here and there. Nothing, nothing major. I did. I I was doing a lot of. Uh, I did some. Uh, it was a little late in the '90s, but I started to do session work, playing on commercials and things like that. Like uh, I had a friend who was uh, yeah, doing a lot of uh, soundtrack stuff, so I would come in and, and play on the odd, the odd little movie thing or the TV show thing or some. You know, I played on like some beer commercials and gene commercials and perfume commercials and a lot of that was just around around about the same time i think as little little before and about the same time as uh the the rubber town freak thing okay tell me a kim fowley story you have to have one yeah i mean i spent well like i uh that was spent a loss that was kind of a lost weekend at, at chris darrow's place and i think we recorded about 18 songs and in two days and uh there's six songs that we did which we wrote on the spot which never made it on that record which have disappeared forever mm. um which i wish would resurface because i think they were they were pretty good but um basically when we recorded that we just we, we recorded it live in, in chris's studio and everything was bleeding into everything else so you had you know uh drums and the and guitars and the and the the vocal mics and everything like that so the reason i say this is uh i get a call from kim uh, about a month after uh um about a month after we recorded it saying that he wanted to go in and do some uh some overdubs and backing vocals or something else and so i went in the studio with him and i walk in and there's this young woman smacking her gum and and doing her nails on the on, on the couch in the uh, uh, control room, and saying, "Kim, hey, when are we going to get around to doing my shot for the album cover?" And so, what had happened is, in in the course of uh, the last month, he had there was some uh, young woman who he wanted to have part of the record, and so he was going to go in and re-record all of his vocals with her, and they were going to do this sort of back and forth kind of thing. And uh, so in order to do that, he had to turn all the backing tracks down really low, because if he didn't, you'd be able to hear his old vocals. So uh -huh. when you listen to the record, the backing track's really low, and it's almost like a spoken word thing. It's like, you know, Kim and, and, and this woman uh, talking back and forth with a very low backing track, and that's kind of the end up being the sound of the record, you know. But, uh, you know, you get calls in the middle of the night from Kim and he'd, he'd be going on and on and on about all this stuff and he, he was saying you know I want to get into this whole riot girl thing and I go you want to get in on it you kind of invented it you know <laughs> runaways I mean what do you mean you want to get in on it you know um, but you know I didn't have a lot of contact with Kim after that you know it was pretty much uh, he was an old friend of, of Chris Darrow and, and Steve knew him since he was a little kid mm -hmm. and then um, but yeah it was just sort of a few weeks you know of uh of late night phone calls with the guy and then just a really a couple of days in the studio. So how does it end up that you reunite, reunite with Chris and Julie? It, I don't know, actually, I'm trying to think about it. I, um, there was just, I guess what it was, was Chris was sort of inspired by their, the, uh, support that he had got from reuniting the flesh eaters. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, he made a record he was really proud of. 
which is a great record. I used to be pretty, and they did a and they they reformed the Flesh Eaters reformed a, a few times over the past like I don't know ten or fifteen years, um, and all the tours they did, the little limited tours and shows they did were were really successful and and um, I mean they had an amazing band. It was basically you know half the Blasters, half of X, and like you know. 20% of Los Lobos mm-hmm. and then Chris, you know, up there. So, I mean, you know, uh, it's a, amazing musicians and, and a great band. And so he said, well, you know, we should, you know, we, there's no reason we can't do another Divine Horseman record. And uh, so we were going to, what we were going to do before recording, we were actually going to do a series of shows. And then uh, uh, Robin died. And that would have been in the summer of, 2018 i guess it was mm-hmm. and um so that kind of blew everything up we were just knowing you know we didn't we had a show that was booked at the at the echo and and out here in la and they were already selling tickets for it but we just we didn't even we were yeah the wind kind of got knocked out of us and we said you know i, I just i just want to do it right now so it was probably out until next spring after that like april of uh, 2019 that Chris and I started getting together and writing songs. And I honestly, I, I'd only seen Chris a couple of times since then. And actually the first time that I'd really spent any time with Chris was when he told me that Robin was in a coma in the hospital. And I went by his place to pick him up and I hadn't really sat down with Chris and had a conversation with him in almost, you know, probably 28 years or something. Here we go. We're going to see, uh, oral bandmate who was in a coma, yeah. you know, so it was, you know, the re their reuniting with Chris was on, was in a very sort of bizarre and, and depressing situation. But when we started getting together down at my studio, um, and all the songs just came together really fast. You know, he, he had a lot of words and he had ideas about what he wanted to sound like. And so we knocked out the first song we wrote was mystery writers. Um, and, uh, yeah, and we just we just we the writing happened really fast. We there's a number of covers on the on the new record also, um, and you know Chris has already got a bunch of other songs that we that we've already started working on stuff for another record. Right on. And yeah, he's just he's bugging me every day. He's got yeah, I got this, <laughs> I got this. We got to get together. And so you know, it, we could have a we could have two records written in the next couple of months if I had enough time to sit down and, and do everything. So yeah, Chris is on a, a real. Uh, you know, he's he's on a real creative tangent right now. I think that's great. Can't wait to hear it. Will there be touring post COVID? I hope so. Um, we just, you know, we just have to see how it how it plays out. You know, um, I don't know if if financially we'll be able to uh, to manage doing a full U.S. tour, but you know, there may be a few shows here and there. We talked about going up to. Seattle and back, you know, um, and maybe going back to the East Coast for a couple of shows, but we don't, yeah, it's a bit too early to say. We have to see how, how things go. Well, we'll keep our fingers crossed for the decadent reissue. Or yeah, the yeah, don't, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, hopefully, well, obviously the forthcoming Divine Horseman record, which hoping we'll hear, be hearing about any day now. And uh, whatever else is in store, hopefully. Well, you might want to look at, since 2010, I've also been playing with a band in Detroit called the Volbeats. And uh, we have a record that we recorded about 10 years ago that's going to be coming out. 
in the fall on Ben Harper's label, Mad Bunny. Um, and so we're kind of in the final stages of getting that ready to go. Oh, so cool. Where can look out, look out for the Volbeats. Yeah. Is there a Bandcamp page? Uh, not yet. Okay. No. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I don't know if you're familiar with Outrageous Cherry, uh, but it's, yep. uh, yeah, well, it's Matt Smith from Outrageous Cherry. You know, he's had a band called the Volbeats since the late eighties mm. and they've released a ton of records. And, uh, I met Matt. In the mid '90s, we were both touring in, in Simon Bonney's uh, tour touring band, and so mm. um, I sort of, you know, kept in touch with those guys, and then joined their band about ten years ago. So I fly back there a few times a year to do do shows. So oh, cool! This is in Detroit, obviously. This is in Detroit, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay, awesome. Well, we'll we'll keep an eye out for that too. That's great. All right, Peter, thanks so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. All right. Well, thanks for having me. Cool, man. So awesome to hear from Peter. I, I love how you guys are talking about the gear and the stolen guitars, um, <laughs> even though it's like a you know a crappy story, of course. But I just love it. You both feel like you know there's still a knife in your heart when you talk about stolen gear stories. <laughs> you know interesting connection in the last few weeks for me anyways with one of peter's stories it actually relates to that dave grohl documentary what drives us i don't know if you saw that yet not yet and um ben harper is in that movie and he talks about how christian death were like his neighbors and turned him on to punk rock oh wow yeah and so peter was talking about ben harper and christian death in the interview and it was like oh no way like it, it it just keeps going. I love the SS tree. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, that Phantoms book, again, I, I flipped ahead a little bit and started reading the chapter that, well, Peter's interviewed in it, as well as, you know, Steve Darrow, and uh, they talk about Roz Williams and, and forming, uh, you know, forming Christian Death. They were, that was definitely part of their, their group. Yeah. Yeah. And Ryan, we... For the first time in 176 episodes, it's finally happened. We, <laughs> I can't wait to hear what this is. All in one episode, we fit in a mention of the Lazy Cowgirls, the Hangmen, and Crowbar Salvation. There you go. Like I can quit the podcast now. I don't think so. We got we have lots more to cover, man. I'm glad we got to talk about Crowbar Salvation. Their record is like. Sympathy, sympathy for the record industry five yeah i know i don't have it i only have the single which i i think i, I sent you a, a picture of yeah. um i was spinning that after listening to the interview i gotta check out the full length have you heard it yeah i have yeah it's good and yeah i love Is it? it i love it yeah yeah the single is pretty cool yeah um just you know i was looking back like just out of curiosity i knew like that the Lazy Cowgirls were the first release on Sympathy, Radio Cowgirl. It's basically, you know, the reason he started the label was to release that. The second release, Ryan, is Jeff Dahl, Vomit Wet Kiss. Ooh. Yeah. I've been going through some Dahl withdrawal. Thought you might be. <laughs> How about that Rubber Town Freaks record that we mentioned with Kim Fowley? Have you ever, ever heard that? No, no. I haven't really checked out anything with Kim Fowley on it because I kind of feel like they're they're probably not that good based on yeah. what I've heard. Is it any good? Never heard it. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Have to check. I will be checking it out though. 
It's I make a long list every episode and I grind through them. Yeah. I'd like to dig in a little bit more into Steve Darrow's dad, Chris Darrow. I've definitely heard his name before. Mm. I feel like. Yeah. Yeah. Let's uh, talk about these tracks, Ryan. History lesson part two. So Brent, we probably need to mention up front that there are two different track listings that we're going to navigate through. Hey, yeah, well, we'll do that when we go through the tracks, but this is a 12 inch EP on SST and also on cassette and then 12 inch EP only on new rows mm. in the UK. Yep. Yep. And the cassette has got different cover, different tracks and we'll go through that. Yeah. So track one side one is the title track handful of sand music by Chris, Peter, Robin and divine horseman words by Chris, uh, engineered by Paul de Grey, assisted by Ronnie champagne recorded at El Dorado and Paul and Mike studio, December 87. In his book, A Minute to Pray, A Second to Die, Chris says, The handful of sand song was solely about getting clean and the transcendental euphoria, acute desperation, deep emotional pain, utter powerlessness that was endemic to the process. It was the last Divine Horseman song we ever recorded and also symbolized a last attempt by Julie and I to shake off the yoke of drugs and save our marriage, an effort that proved futile as far as our relationship. Julie got clean in the late summer of 1987, but I couldn't until nearly nine years later. Oof. And the chorus, Ryan, sounds like some 12-step program. I guess yep. slogans, like, I'm powerless, I confess, I need to change my life, it's a mess. Surrender to something higher. We'll live hour by hour. I'm powerless, I confess. I love the first eight bars of this song that <laughs> killer riff mixed hard left and then robin like straight out of the 60s riding that bass rex pounding out a beat on the snare and then peter comes in again hard right kind yeah. of stabbing out some keith riffs it's just awesome and then they bring it down to this tight groove julie's amazing gospel tinged vocals come roaring in this whole song is just a tour de force of kick-ass rock and roll. Yeah. Yeah, it's insane. I was, like, it sounds great. I love Robin's bass playing, as mentioned before. Can you imagine seeing these guys live? Like, yeah. when you look at the live pictures on the back here, just like, oh my God, it must have been insane to see Chris and Julie sing together on stage, right? Yeah. What I was thinking is this song's probably never been performed live. So hopefully they'll get the opportunity to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Peter kind of peels off a great Chuck Berry solo. Uh, he's slightly out of tune, which gives the song kind of this ragged quality that I just love. Brantley Kearns plays the song out with some well-placed fiddle. He was Dwight Yoakam's fiddle player. And from what I could find is, you know, retired now, I believe. Mm -hmm. I also saw a thing where he had a one-off band with Bruce Duff. No way. Yeah. <laughs> First stuff's played with everybody, man. It's crazy. Oh, yeah. Now, this is, I think, one of two songs. If you combine both versions of this release, this is one of two songs that you only hear on the Handful of Sand release, I think. Everything else is on a different release elsewhere. Is that right? I think so, yeah. Okay, keep yeah. going. Uh, Curse of the Crying Woman is the next song. Music, Divine Horseman, Julie, and Peter. Words, 
Chris and Julie. This is a great track with a great lead vocal from Julie. I know we talked about this one on the Snake Handler album, which is the parent, you know, the album that this comes off of. Chris had said at the time he was unhappy with it because his vocal is mixed super low. This is the one where there's a cool thing at the end of the song where there was like, I can't remember the specifics, but there was an older recording on the tape or something that kind of they, bleeds through. Yeah, they, it bleeds through and creates that cool effect at the end of the song, which was a happy accident. This is recorded at Control Center with Paul in June, July 87 during the Snake Handler session. And then we close outside one on the LP with Tenderest Kiss. Music, Chris, Julie, Divine Horseman, Words, Chris. This was recorded April, May 85 at Quad Tech. So this would have been recorded by Pat Burnett during a seven song session, generally known as the Quad Tech Demos. These recordings were done between the Time Stand Still record and Devil's River. This track is also on the Time Stand Still CD reissue on Atavistic. There's a version on Devil's River too, Different right? Different version, yeah. It's actually an older version than the one on Devil's River. Is Curse of the Crying Woman the exact same as the one from Snake Handler? Yes. Sounds very similar to me, right? It's the same, yeah. Same sessions, everything? Okay. So this band, version of the band was Robin, Rex, Chris, Julie, and Matt Lee on guitar, who's, he plays on Middle of the Night and Devil's River. We've seen him before. Chris Kakavis on keys, who's played in a bunch of bands, including Green on Red, The Dream Syndicate, and has many solo albums. I actually prefer the Devil's River version myself of this song. Tenderest Kiss? Yeah. It's more raw yeah. sounding. I think fidelity-wise, this version sounds a little bit better. That doesn't mean it is better, though. It just has a better fidelity to it. Yeah, Chris says in his book he was striving to do something similar to the Beatles. Hmm. Yeah. I, I always love those back and forth vocals that Chris and Julie do. Like, oh. you know, Julie's going, I didn't think a boy like you could exist. And Chris is going, I didn't think a girl like you could exist. And then they come together, you know, to sing the chorus together. They do that a lot and it always works great. Yeah. This one is not listed on the LP jacket either. No, it is on the label though. And as you mentioned, the SST cassette subs this one out for their cover of Donovan's Super Lungs. Recorded during the Snake Handler sessions, Super Lungs and all of Side 2 of this release are also on the CD version of Snake Handler. Cool acoustic guitar on it. Yeah. All three songs on Side 2 of this were recorded as more stripped-down studio versions on the Time Stand Still album from 1984, which was more or less Chris's solo album, credited as Chris D and Divine Horseman. Not men. You can hear that on the Divine Horseman Bandcamp page, though. Yeah. And, as of course, as Peter mentioned in the interview, none of these are actually live. The audience noise is from a live gig somewhere else. Uh, these were recorded during the Snake Handler sessions. Yeah. It does kind of give it away, though, at times when, like, the crowd noise is coming up and down and all of a sudden, it sounds like they're they're playing at, you know, Wembley Stadium. <laughs> Sometimes, depending on how the crowd noise comes across in the mix. It, and, I mean, it sounds really good, though. Like, I found that Julie's voice on these quote-unquote live tracks on the B-side are just insane. Like, they stand out so much. Oh, yeah. um, her voice is killer everywhere all the time, but for some reason, these three tracks the way that they stick out in the mix just awesome 
yeah, all three of these tracks are with the two guitar lineup with Wayne James on guitar, who played on Devil's River in Middle of the Night. We'll be seeing him again in the Reunited Flesh Eaters as well. It's listed on the LP as traditional, uh, lyrically, the music by Chris. He says in his book, I f- he goes, I found a book at a used bookstore called American Murder Ballads, a collection of mid-19th century song lyrics from frontier America, mostly chronicles of tragically doomed romance. It fascinated me because it coincided with my worldview and was evidence of a missing link between European literary romanticism and 19th century American popular culture. So what he did, Ryan, is he took the lyrics from various songs from this book and pasted them together to create the lyrics for this song. Ah, that's a cool technique. Yeah, it's a cool song. Uh, But the live highlight for me is the next one, Past All Dishonor. 100%. That's that's the best one. Words and Music by Chris. Again, they do that back and forth thing. Uh, Chris going, you know, you took me past all dishonor. Lover to a liar, a whore. (laughs) (laughs) What about Julie's singing? It got an ace in one hand, still fighting a private war, like just soaring gospel but with a bit of snarl too in her vocals yeah awesome yeah the midsection of this song where it goes into that breakdown and peter and wayne are you know riffing off of each other it just kicks so much ass yeah and then track three sanctuary words and music by chris i'm not sure if you noticed ryan but chris sings the line all the other whores are clucking their tongues uh which makes it all three tracks on this side of the record mention whores i'm so glad you kept track of that (laughs) (laughs) this is about a nun named sister lucy damien who's deadlier than any man according to lyrics and throws away her veil breaks her sacred vows and sinks down to bourbon street where junkies sing her song and winos kiss her feet whoa that's a great ep solid yeah i love it really solid the artwork ryan is pretty classic divine horseman christie artwork peter talks about it a bit in the interview it's pretty cool the the front cover on the cassette is a little bit different it's a different hand different tattoos too right yeah there's like a spider web tattoo on the person's hand or something that's pretty hardcore for back then to get like spider web tattoos on your hand in in the late 80s like that yeah the back covers got the band looking amazing as usual. We've got some of the snake handler artwork that I think they used on a t-shirt, the Robert Williams artwork. In fact, it says snake handler t-shirts by Robert Williams available from SST address below. Uh, the front cover, it says front cover CD. So I'm assuming that's indicating that it was Chris, Chris's concept. Christy, yeah. The hand is Pam G, the tattoo by Jill Jordan, who was in the Flesh Eaters. And the photos are by Jeff C. Yeah, so you can see Peter playing that Korean Strat mm-hmm. with that sweet satin cowboy shirt. And you know what? That I don't know what it is on his left leg on his jeans. There, it looks like uh, some sort of sticker. Like a, it says. I think it's like a backstage pass or something like that that you would stick on. 
somewhere to say who you are because it says artist divine horseman underneath there's a very famous i and i don't know who took the photo um it might be might be ed culver in fact very famous photos of jello like shirtless with jeans and like a dead kennedy's backstage pass sticker on his left thigh like that 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 reminded me of it's too bad peter's not wearing his snakeskin suit suit oh i know yeah, I know. Speaking of photos, uh, this photographer, this photographer Susanna Regos, uh, who photographed the band and many others, sent some great photos from some club shows like Club Lingerie, The Music Machine. We've posted some of them previously, but we'll we'll have some new ones for this this episode. Uh, she's also working on a book, Ryan. You can find some of her merch on uh, Punk Rock Comedy on Instagram. Ah, okay, that sounds cool. Well, in the absence of a snakeskin suit, Robin has a snakeskin bass guitar strap, thankfully. Yeah. Looks like he's playing a Music Man bass. It's hard to tell, but that's that's interesting to me anyways. I always would think, you know, maybe uh, like a, for especially for Robin's style, you know, if not a P bass, maybe even like a, a Gibson or something like that, a bass. He looks, so very, like, he looks like he should be playing one of those teardrop basses like the Chesterfield Kings play. Yeah, like a Vox or yeah. something like that. You know, I, I ex- exactly, exactly. So interesting to see a music man there. Um, you know what it also, remi- well, what also came to mind, I wonder how many times Rex and Chris were walking around the club in a low lit club and they were getting mistaken for each other. Maybe. Uh, by people, because they, they have a kind of a similar look now and then um hairline for sure similar hairline yeah yeah for sure and chris is just like he's he's down on his knees needs some sanctuary while he's singing just awesome oh yeah julie's got a snake bracelet on which totally fits in that hat um oh my god yeah oh they were a style they were a stylish band no doubt about it oh for sure no dead wax, Ryan. Confirmed. Yeah. Sadly. Then it's ballot result time. Ballot result. Hey, before we fight over the ballot result, let me hit you with the Spaceman spiel on this record because it's pretty good. Okay. So this is what Michael Whitaker said in the SST catalog for this release. Grab the reins tight. This record is a Mustang of love that is going to throw you off if you aren't careful. With three songs recorded live in a dingy, south-of-the-border bordello, it doesn't come any more real than this. <laughs> that is right? That is great. No doubt right? about it. Yeah. The spaceman never disappoints, man. Nope. He, he, he came pretty close with the Kriak in, <laughs> on the Louie Louie one, though, right? <laughs> Hey, that reminded me, uh, we, we might get hit up by the central scrutinizer on this, but you know where that Louis Louis song also appears? That version? Where? On Posh Hits Volume 1. Okay. I think Louis Louis on that, you know, so retroactive Louis Louis action there. Tell me what your ballot result is for Handful of Sand, Brent. Oh, it's got to be Handful of Sand. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I go with any of them. Handful of Sand or Past All Dishonor would be my two, so Handful of Sand it is. Right on. Whew. I can't wait for the for their record, man. Hot Rise of an Ice Cream Phoenix 
It's going to be out this summer on In the Red. I cannot wait. Yeah, it's going to be good. I can't wait to hear the vocals. It's a know? double album, man. Oh, is Robin on that? Robin. Like, did he record before he passed away? No, no, I don't think no. so. Do you know who's on bass on that record? Uh, we've talked about it before, but I can't remember. I don't yeah, have it. I can't remember. Yeah. A friend of Peter's, I believe. Yeah, pretty big shoes to fill. Robin's runs just get me every time. Yeah. Right on, man. Hey, thanks to Peter for being on the show. Yeah. Ryan, what's next week? Brant, next week we're going to go back on the Zion train with SST 177, the HR Keep Out of Reach EP. Nice. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.